With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Robbie Samuels hosts the On the Schmooze podcast. Robbie, tell listeners what to expect from the show. Since 2015, I've interviewed entrepreneurs who overcame challenges to achieve success in their field or industry. Tune in to On the Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them. Go subscribe. We all come together. Welcome to the Collective Cafe. Hello, Mr. James Wisdom, and I see Mark Shays is there as well. Uh, I just see Jonathan S. and Bavana. Welcome, welcome. Uh, welcome to all of you in our Discord as well. Hello, Rhonda. Hope you're well. Hello, Spencer. Today, today, well, by the way, this was AI generated. Um, so the words got a little bit gobbled. I mean, for those of you that have used Midjourney before, you'll know that some for some reason the um, words are weird with AI. They struggle. Um, they struggle also with people eating. They look like aliens for some reason when they eat. So um, this was uh, this is actually an app um, or an AI tool that creates the the lyrics, creates the singing, creates the music. Um, so I'll play it again, and I'll kind of tell you what the word should be. We all come, we all come together, together in the collective cafe. place of acceptance, no judgment here today. Our ideas shared, no ideas left behind. Here we are, a collective mind. So we come together Monday through Friday, 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on, says I'm on mute, am I mute? I shouldn't be. Give me a little emoji if you can hear me. I'm having some weird difficulties today. Let me see if I mute, unmute. So, oh, so you can hear me. I know, so weird. Anyway, on Monday, we manifest, we talk about motivation Mondays. On Tuesday, Thought Leadership Tuesdays. On Wednesdays, Wellness Wednesdays. We talk about mental health, but also like skills. You know, it could be even networking. Thursday, live book reads. And Friday, we do what's called No Agenda Friday which gives you an opportunity to come up to the stage and tell me what's on your mind. Uh, If you want to actually almost imagine like Hyde Park, you want to get on the soapbox and discuss something on your mind, go for it, do it. Um, If you have a question for me, a comment, a pushback, um, I also kind of tend to discuss my show this this week, um, you know, talking uh, all about podcasting, 
um, as well. And so I bring like little audio clips even from Joseph Jaffe is not famous. Our Fridays are amazing because um, Jay Kunzo is actually my guest this week. In fact, that show will go live today as well. I'm also spending a fair amount of time, more time now, talking a little bit about uh, EOS, about the entrepreneurial operating system, but specifically about coaching, um, about um, just things that I'm learning. It's so fascinating. Um, you know, I, I we did a whole session on does a business, why every business needs an operating system, but also just talking about the entrepreneurial uh, journey. Um, you know, there's certain concepts from EOS that I love, like the concept of enter the danger. What does that mean? Um, I did a whole session on that, which was, you know, what I realized is you you have to deal with the danger when you enter the danger. <laughs> so it's like one of those interesting things, which is like, okay, you've entered the danger, now what? Well, it feels weird, you know, so I actually entered the danger with someone, then I just felt all awkward, and then I spent the next 30 minutes trying to go, well, actually, I think we're really saying the same thing. And I'm like, nope, that's not what enter the danger means. It means you got to be comfortable with the danger. And the other person was fine with me. They were like, it's okay, Joe, I get it, I get it. And I'm like, no, 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 you're a good guy, and I didn't mean to shout at you. And he's like, I get it, it's okay. So anyway, that's what we do in the Collective Cafe we also have a podcast version of it, bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash Collective Cafe to go, where every <clears throat> episode is available for you. So hello to Praxim and Tim in our Discord. Um, and uh, today we are continuing the live book read of a book called Happier by Tal Ben-Shahar, PhD, author of The Pursuit of Perfect. Um, the subhead is Learn the Secrets to Daily Joy and Lasting Fulfillment. If you go and pick up some of these uh, past uh, reads, they're amazing. Um, the hamburger approach, just like the whole concept of current and you know current and future happiness. Uh, the rat race is the you know the the person that that sacrifices happiness today for some future state. The problem is that future state never comes. The hedonist is the opposite. They all about today, you know, and they sacrifice for the you know what happens tomorrow. Um, the nihilist is neither happy today nor tomorrow, um, but the fourth quadrant are people that can find happiness today and in the future. And, and you know, one of the, like, spoiler alert, one of the good spoilers is the fact that actually part of the, th the, the message is to love the journey and have a purpose, right? That's the message. That's the key. That's the TLDR. you got to love the journey, right? And it helps when... You don't mind the hard work and the sacrifice and you can deal with the rejection and, you know, and the bumps along the road, but you have a purpose. You have this unwavering belief in success. I just, um, I just read, uh, you know, I've been reading Good to Great, part of my, you know, part of, of my coaching uh, toolbox with EOS and um, reading about the whole Stockdale, um, is it called the Stockdale Paradox? Um, just an amazing story, Jim Stockdale. You know, this idea when you have this, you know, unwavering determination that success, there will be success. It's gonna, it's gonna happen. It's not, it's not that you're unrealistic. You're not unrealistic about it. You're absolutely determined. You will get there. You know, it's what pulls you forward. It's, it's, you know, it's Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. It's like you, you believe you're here for a reason and you believe that there will be light. You know, and you just keep working towards it, not not delusionally, um, but just with this unwavering belief. So it's it's this idea of current and future state. So anyway, <clears throat> a little bit of preamble and context. Today we're reading uh, a chapter 
which is called The Ultimate Currency. And, and you know, I, I love this book so much because, um, you know, in my new book, In Forever Changed, um, there's a chapter called Does Money Buy Happiness? And the conclusion in the chapter is no, but happiness buys money. So I'll leave that hanging, right? So let's, let's, let's begin. The Ultimate Currency, a quote from Rolf Waldo Emerson. What lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what, uh, compared to what lies within us. Marva Collins was a school teacher in Chicago's inner city, a place where crime and drugs were rampant and where hope and optimism were scarce. The area's problems were grave and many educators had little faith that their students would be able to escape the destitution and hopelessness that were passed down from one generation to the next. In 1975, Collins founded the West Side uh, Preparatory, 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 Preparatory School for children in her neighborhood, many of whom had been rejected from other schools for bad behavior or for their inability for one reason or another to integrate into the school system. Westside Prep, or just call it, was their last chance before the street. At Westside, these same children who were once labeled unteachable learned to read Shakespeare, Emerson, um, and, uh, and Euripides, I'm like doing badly with these words, by the fourth grade, the children who were once written off as irredeemable failures ended up going to college. Collins students internalized her vision that each and every student has the potential to succeed. They developed confidence in themselves and were able to imagine and realize a more hopeful future. Collins founded a school with very little money, initially using her house as a classroom, For the next 20 years, she continued to struggle financially and was often on the verge of closure. Today, there are Marva Collins schools in several states. Educators from all over the world come to Chicago to meet with her, learn her methods, and be inspired by her. Collins' experience provides an insight into the implications of recognizing happiness as the ultimate end. She says that when, quote, In the company of people who run multi-billion dollar corporations and who have amassed fortunes, end quote, she asks herself time and again why she wants to be a teacher. Colin finds an answer as she reflects on one of her students. Tiffany was a child considered autistic and who had not spoken, who had been told by the experts that she was an unlovable and unteachable child. Then one day after much patience, prayers, love and determination, Tiffany's first words to me were, I love you, Mrs. Ollins. The consonant C was, uh, I love you, Mrs. Ollins. The consonant C was left off, but I realized that the tears that flowed with Tiffany's declaration made me the wealthiest woman in the world. Today, to see Tiffany writing her numerals, beginning to read single words, talking, and most of all, to see that glee in her eyes that says, I too am special, I too can learn, this to me is worth all of the gold in Fort Knox. Just I'm uh, actually one of the quotes that I actually write in, in, in my book is a Bob Marley quote, which is uh, some people are so poor, all they have is money. Um, of another student whose life was transformed by Westside Prep School, Collins writes, it is worth all the sleepless nights wondering how I'm going to balance our deficits to see the glow in his eyes that will one day light the world. Marva Collins could have made a fortune. She could have avoided worrying about closures and deficits. 
In the 1980s, she could have accepted the Reagan and Bush administration's offers of the post of Secretary of Education and all the honor and prestige, wow, that that would have brought her. But Collins loved to teach and believed that she could make the most significant difference in the classroom. Teaching gave her life meaning that she believed no other profession could give her. Teaching gave her the emotional gratification that no amount of money could buy. She felt that she was the wealthiest woman in the world and that her experiences as a teacher were worth more to her than all of the gold in Fort Knox because happiness, not gold or prestige, is the ultimate currency. So this is what's called, there are several what they call time-ins. These are questions. What for you is worth all of the gold in Fort Knox? So I typically try and answer the questions in these sessions, um, but, you know, I'm totally happy you know linkedin linkedin is <clears throat> you know linkedin is uh, a little bit more difficult in terms of how to maintain a chat that's why we actually the main home for for the collective cafe is discord.gg forward slash alpha collective so if you actually want to come in and uh and check in with us you know the the chat is a little bit more um active so you know i'll 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 answer the question uh, and maybe we can have some people in linkedin come up to the stage um, but but what I'll do is we had some audio issues in terms of piping in Discord and LinkedIn together. But you know whatever. Uh, so w- what is what is worth all the gold in Fort Knox for me? Um, you know I mean I I've realized it. It's it's to reach as many people as I can with the ability with this promise of you know, of certainly hope, positivity, and optimism in a time of despair, right? That was that was the essence of starting the show. But as I've developed my why statement, which is just really helping people get unstuck, return to growth, and become forever changed, you know, I've rewritten it, you know, specifically for now my coaching business, helping high aspiring entrepreneurs, business owners, and their leadership teams get unstuck, return to growth, and become forever changed. But, you know, as I've said to people, like, I just want to be able to reach as many people as possible. I keep on saying, you know, there are 8 billion people in this world. They're searching for me. The only problem is they don't know that I exist yet, right? Or maybe they do, but they can't find me. Or, But most likely, they just don't even know I exist yet. There's so much drivel out there. There's so much mediocrity. Um, there's so much bait and switch. Um, helping people, helping people, you know. I mean, I see... James is in the audience, fellow uh, implemented EOS. And you know, yesterday I, I led a session, a vision, my very first vision building day session, and helping helping a company come up with their core values and their core focus, their passion, their cause, their purpose, their niche. You know, and realizing that there are four types really. There's there's the idea of fixing. The, you know, it is like when you when you get to the essence of why you exist. You know, so the four methods or the four, you know, categories are the first one is this idea of fixing, right? Something was broken and I fixed it. I made it better. Uh, the second is helping, um, helping generally people. The third is building, generally building something, product or an entity. Um, and the last one is winning, like being able to, you know, and winning, winning's a little ephemeral, but, you know, w- winning can mean, you know, at the expense of some, of, of something or someone losing, but it's generally not a person. You know, it might be pushing off against an enemy. The enemy might be status quo, 
right? The enemy might be injustice or inequality, etc. But it's what gets you out of bed in the morning, you know. And and um, so let's continue. Happiness as the ultimate currency. If we wanted to assess the worth of a business, we would use money as our means of measurement. We would calculate the dollar value of its assets and liabilities, profits and losses. Anything that could not be translated into monetary terms would not increase or decrease the value of the company. In this case, in measuring a company's worth, money is the ultimate currency. A human being like a business makes profit and suffers losses. For a human being, however, the ultimate currency is not money, nor is it any external measure such as fame, fortune, or power. The ultimate currency for a human being is happiness. Money and fame are subordinate to happiness and have no intrinsic value. The only reason money and fame may be desirable is that having them or the thought of having them could lead to positive emotions or meaning. In themselves, wealth and fame are worthless. There would be no reason to seek fame or fortune if they did not contribute in some way toward happiness. In the same way that assets are secondary to money in a business, in that their worth is evaluated in dollars and cents, fame and material wealth are secondary to happiness in our lives. The ramifications of understanding that happiness is the ultimate currency are dramatic. To take an extreme example, if we were offered the choice between a million dollars and a conversation with a friend, we should choose the one that would give us more overall happiness. If the conversation provided more emotional gratification and meaning than a million dollars, then we should choose the conversation. Using the ultimate currency as the standard, we would profit more if we were to choose the conversation. Weighing the value of a conversation against money may seem like comparing apples to oranges, but by translating money, conversations, or anything else for that matter, into the currency of happiness, through evaluating how happy something makes us, we have a common currency that enables us to compare seemingly unrelated experiences. Needless to say, the choice between a million dollars and a conversation is not so simple. In order to choose wisely, it is insufficient to say that we, are, that we enjoy speaking to our friend more and should therefore forego the million dollars. A large sum of money can provide security in the future and that may prevent certain negative emotions in the long run. In addition, a million dollars can provide the freedom and opportunity to take on meaningful tasks. If, however, after taking the full context into consideration, we find that the conversation will yield more pleasure and meaning, then it is ultimately of more value to us than a million dollars. As the psychologist Carl Jung said, the least of things with a meaning is worth more in life than the greatest of things without it. The least of things with a meaning is worth more in life than the greatest of things without it. Imagine the following scenario. An alien from Venus walks into a shop and asks to purchase an item worth $1,000. She offers the shop owner the choice between $1,000 or a bill that on Venus is equivalent to a million Earth dollars. The shop owner knows that he will never get to Venus and that Venusian, Venusian money has no value, Venetian, but it actually says Venusian money has no value on Earth. Unless he wants to keep the money for its sentimental value, the shop owner should choose the thousand Earth dollars. Venusian currency is only as valuable as the sum it can yield in the currency that is accepted on Earth. Likewise, a million dollars is only as valuable as the sum it can yield in the ultimate currency. 
just as earth money is the ultimate currency in which a business is paid, and hence the currency that matters, happiness is the ultimate currency in which a human being is paid, and thus the currency that matters. Happiness should be the determinant of our actions, the goal toward which all other goals lead. Wealth and happiness. Money, beyond the bare minimum necessary for food and shelter, and I'm not talking caviar and castles, is nothing more than a means to an end. Yet so often we confuse means with ends and sacrifice happiness, end, for money, means. So this, I think, is starting to get into a little bit more of the meat here. Is it is a means to an end, right? I mean, there's no way money is the ultimate end. I think we all recognize it is an enabler. Money allows us to achieve or access or whatever. But but here we talk about, or he talks about, confusing means with ends and sacrifice money and sacrifice happiness, the end for money means. It is easy to do this when material wealth is elevated to the position of the ultimate end and it, and it so often <clears throat> is in our society. This is not to say that the accumulation and production of material wealth is in itself wrong. Material prosperity can help individuals as well as society attain high levels of happiness. Financial security can liberate us from work we do not find meaningful and from having to worry about the next paycheck. Even so, it is not the money per se that is valuable, but the fact that it can potentially yield more positive experiences. Material wealth in and of itself does not necessarily generate meaning or lead to emotional wealth. Studies have shown that the relationship between wealth and happiness is very different from what most of us would expect. In extensive cross-cultural and longitudinal studies of happiness, psychologist David Myers found a very low correlation between material wealth and happiness, except in cases of extreme poverty where people's basic needs were not being met. Moreover, although for the last 50 years the population in many countries has become wealthier, studies reveal no increase and often a decrease in levels of happiness. So I just want to stop for a second, you know, and talk about, um, you know, I I address this uh, in the book. And I talk about how, I talk about, you know, the, the parabola and the inverse parabola associated with, um, with age and happiness and money and happiness. And, and the point I make is, is we're actually happiest when we're younger and happiest when we're older. Um, and we're least happy in the middle because we have the most issues. We have the most challenges financially, mortgages, college funds, you know, dealing, uh, being laid, you know, it's like all that stuff in the middle, right? But when we're young, we don't really understand, you know, we're just like, we don't really have many problems. We think our problems are, you know, huge, right? Like not being invited to a party or not being tagged on Instagram or whatever the case may be, or too much homework. But at the end of the day, as we grow up, we realize how we didn't really have a care in the world. And then when we get older now, when we think about getting into our, you know, 50 is the new 40, 60 is the new 50, 70 is the new 60, is that we realize that like life begins at 50, life begins at 60, so on and so forth. And then I kind of flipped it with money, right? Which is we are least happy when we have no money and we're least happy or, or, or you know, relatively when we have too much money. 
know, when life becomes so complicated, when we're expected to show up and 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 provide and sit on this board and you know, and, and we're not really sure if people actually like us for ourselves or for our money. So it's complicated, right? It's complicated. So, you know, what I actually did is I kind of like, you know, put these two graphs together and, and I realized like there are two points of intersection when when both age and money, you know, kind of intersect from a happiness standpoint. You know, and I basically said, I think it could be, maybe, could it be? I don't know that it is. But I just asked the question, could it be as simple as when we are in college and also when our kids are all in college? Maybe not the first, you know, you become an empty nester and might be a bit depressing. But think about it. Like when you're at college, think about that moment in your life, right? Think about the fact that you are now for the first time you know, not living at home anymore. You're independent. You're hanging out in your dorms or in residence or, you know, your own little apartment. Um, Yeah, there's some workload, but it's just a different level, you know, in terms of how much money you have or don't have uh, on one hand or, you know, or just this, this ability or how many cares or concerns you have in the world. Well, on the flip side, when suddenly, you know, your youngest kid is now in college you know, to know that, first of all, all your kids are in college, will get a college degree, and somehow, and so, and now you're a an empty nester, right, which can be a little bit lonely and weird, yes, and sad, you know, but ultimately you can start to travel the world, and you can maybe, you know, um, learn something, go back to school, learn a new language, or start a business, or recognize that actually life isn't over, you're not in your declining years, your fall years, whatever, but actually uh, a new lease on life. You know, so so I, I do believe, I absolutely believe, um, you know, in in the fact that, you know, money is clearly a means to an end. You know, anyone who doesn't say so is, you know, it's 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 disingenuous. You need enough. But the question, of course, is what is enough? How much is enough? When is it enough? These are the ultimate questions that we have to ask ourselves and we have to answer. You know, and, and I think it's worth figuring out how much is enough. So one way to figure out how to answer that question is to just answer the damn question. You know, uh, as I'm building my practice now with EOS, how many clients is enough? How many days working? How many days not working? How many days of leisure? How many days of discovery? What is enough for me? It's not just about the money. It's never about the money. So when you actually go through the motions and the exercise, um, you know, anyone who says the money is an end unto itself, the question, of course, then is are they happy? And when wealth becomes the ultimate end and status and fame and fortune, um, you become, as I write about in my new book, you just become a hoarder. You're hoarding. You're like, you know, they have shows about you on, I don't know, on HGTV or one of those networks, you know, where you're like, just, just mine, 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 like Daffy Duck. Mine, 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 mine. Like, you know, just get away, bugs. Um, and that's why I write in the book, in a perfect world, in a perfect life, in a life well lived, in a life well loved, we would die with one dollar to our name because as we earned it we spent it we invested it we were able we were able to actually 
share it with the people we love, we were able to make a difference. Nobel Prize winner in economics, Daniel Kahneman, I mean, I think he's the guy who wrote, um, what's it, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, um, has over the last few years turned his attention to studying happiness. Research by Kahneman and his colleagues found little support for the connection between wealth and positive emotions. The belief that high income is associated with good mood is widespread but mostly illusory. People with above average income are relatively satisfied with their lives but are barely happier than others in moment-to-moment experience. Uh, than others in moment-to-moment experience tend to be more tense and do not spend more time in particularly enjoyable activities. Moreover, the effect of income on life satisfaction seems to be transient. We argue that people exaggerate the contribution of income to happiness because they focus in part on conventional achievements when evaluating their life or the lives of others. Surprisingly, some people feel more depressed once they have attained material prosperity than they did while striving for it. The rat race is sustained by the hope that his actions will yield some future benefit, which makes his negative emotions more bearable. However, once he reaches his destination and realizes that material prosperity does not make him happy, there is nothing to sustain him. He's filled with a sense of despair and hopelessness because there is nothing else to look forward to. Nothing that will allow him to envision a future in which he would be happy. There are countless examples of highly successful people who experience depression and turn to alcohol and drugs. Paradoxically, making it actually made them less happy. For while they may have been unhappy before realizing their dream, they were often sustained by the belief that once they got there, they would be happy. And then they get there, and the there that they expected is nowhere to be found. Having been stripped of the illusion that most people live under, that material prosperity and status can provide lasting happiness, they are struck by the what now syndrome. Realizing that all their efforts and sacrifices have not earned them the ultimate currency, they sink into learned helplessness. They experience nihilism and resign themselves to the fact that nothing could possibly make them happy, often turning to alternative means that are destructive in an attempt to escape the unhappy state. So if material wealth does not lead to happiness, why the obsession with it? Why does being rich so often take precedence over finding meaning? Why do we feel so much more comfortable making decisions based on materialistic rather than emotional criteria? Taking an evolutionary approach, it could be that our distant past determines our current behavior. When we were still hunters and gatherers, the accumulation of wealth or food primarily, would often determine whether we would survive the next drought or the next cold winter. Hoarding, interesting, there's the word, I didn't realize it. Hoarding became part of our constitution. Today, even those of us whose futures are materially secure still have the tendency to hoard far beyond our needs. The accumulation of wealth is no longer a means towards survival, but an end in itself. We no longer accumulate to live. We live to accumulate. I mean, that's a killer quote, right? We no longer accumulate to live. We live to accumulate. In making decisions and judgment, we also tend to focus on the material rather than paying heed to the emotional because those things that are quantifiable lend themselves more easily to assessment and evaluation. We value the measurable, material, wealth, and prestige 
over the unmeasurable emotions and meaning. In our wealthy world, we worship material girls and boys. Wealthy people are revered by virtue of their material possession, as if net worth is an apt measure for how worthy a person is. Academics count number of publications as a key, as a key criteria for promotion. We measure the worth of a day or a week according to how productive we were and how much we got done. As Lawrence G. Bolt says in Zen and the Art of Making a Living, society tells us the only thing that matters is matter. The only thing that count are the things that can be counted. The monetary worth of a house is quantifiable. The feelings we attach to our home are not. Shakespeare's Hamlet may cost $10 in the bookstore. What it means to us cannot be measured. Time in. Does concern over wealth and prestige detract from your overall experience of happiness? In what ways? I mean, I'll tell you, for me, um, prestige does not. Um, prestige, and and neither of them do, wealth and prestige. You know, for me, what I'm learning now is I would much rather replace wealth and prestige with what I would call sufficiency, how much is enough, enough, right? And instead of prestige, I would say purpose. So for me, wealth and prestige is replaced with sufficiency and purpose. Just take a swig of my coffee. Um, we will get to the end of the chapter. We have about one, two, three, four pages. And then uh, we'll see if anyone wants to chat or come up. Um, and uh, so this is called emotional bankruptcy. While we are accumulating material wealth, we are nearing bankruptcy in the currency that truly matters. Just as a business can go bankrupt, so can a human being. To remain solvent, a business needs to make profits, that is, its income has to exceed its expenses. In thinking about our lives, it may be helpful to think of positive experiences as income and negative ones as expenses. When our positive experiences outweigh our negative ones, we have made a profit in the ultimate currency. Long-term depression may seen as a sort of emotional bankruptcy. The duration and intensity of negative experiences or losses overwhelm the positive one's income. I mean, this obviously is a very, you know, I don't want to say controversial, but I mean, you know, I mean, when we talk about depression, um, it, it's, it's obviously quite layered as well. The thing that just strikes me, by the way, just before I continue, is, you know, what if you can actually, something that one person would experience as a negative experience or a loss, you actually experience as a positive one, as income. Even if that means, you know, the idea of um, losing um, a piece of business. You lose the piece of business or a pitch, but you actually walk away, um, not searching, you know, like really reaching. I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, you want to win a new piece of business, but it's the wrong, it's the wrong client for you. You want it so badly, um, but you end up getting rejected um, and you kind of think about it philosophically, practically, pragmatically that, you know, maybe, you know, you would, you know, especially when the dust settles, um, you you kind of realize that you compromised yourself or you realize that um, you had strayed from your North Star, from your from your target, 
from your wheelhouse, from your why, you know, from your core focus, from your sweet spot. You'd be like, I wanted it so badly, but now that I zoom out with a 24 hours with a sleep, I realize um, that perhaps I would have won the battle but lost the war. Or just, you know, maybe you're not that philosophical and you just say, well, what did I learn from it? What did I learn from it? How can I come back even stronger next time? I mean, this is the essence of entrepreneuring for the most part. By what you learn, you say, what could I have done better? There's got to be something I could have done better. And sometimes, you know, the last thing I'll say is sometimes there's nothing you could have done differently. Sometimes it just wasn't your day. You know, for us, going back to the whole idea with EOS, right? Someday they were just looking for a female they were looking for a female implementer, and you're not a female. There's nothing you can do about that. It's just, it is what it is. They wanted a female implementer because they're a woman-owned business or because, you know, it's part of their charter. For whatever reason, it doesn't matter what their reason is. It's their reason, but it had nothing to do with you. I think about this as an entrepreneur in, in, in the VC space. How many times have I spoken to an angel or a you know, or a, or, a, or a venture capitalist, and they're like, well, you know, we look at, you know, we look at investments of a hundred uh, of, you know, of one to five million dollars, and I'm looking for half a million. They're like, it doesn't matter how good you are or how good your idea is, you're not in our wheelhouse, right? So in that case, it had nothing to do with you, and it had, you know, and you didn't do anything wrong, and so you just be able to say, all right, that's fine, move on, Right? Not everything has to be a learning too. Sometimes it just, you know, isn't your day. So I do think that when we think about our experiences in our lives, there are positive experiences, there are negative experiences, and there are also neutral experiences. So sometimes, you know, the score could be zero, right? It doesn't have to be positive, a withdrawal or a deposit. But it still is relative. And I think we have some control um, over that as well. An entire society can face the prospect of bankruptcy, a Great Depression, if the percentage of individual bankruptcies continuously rises. Similarly, as the rates of anxiety and depression rise, society heads towards emotional bankruptcy in the ultimate currency. So while we are making huge strides forward in science and technology, in our material welfare, we are rapidly falling farther and farther behind emotionally. Unfortunately, there are no signs that things are improving. Approximately one-third of American teenagers suffer from depression. Studies in the US, Europe, Australia, and Asia indicate that children today experience more anxiety and depression than children did in previous generations. This trend extends across ethnic and socioeconomic lines. Um, I always, you know, when, when, I, when I quote something like this, I'm always going to tell you when this book was actually published. Um, because I think, as we know, this was published in 2007. 2007, oh my God, you know, like, I mean, hello, you know, how much worse this is now with respect to, you know, intense social media and how much worse it is with respect to this post-COVID environment. So, you know, if this is, a, you know, this thing, imagine if people had taken this advice, you know, in 2007, this book, you know, and, and address these some, you know, back then. Um, in his book, Emotional Intelligence, Daniel Goleman notes that each successive generation worldwide since the opening of the 20th century has lived with a higher risk than their parents of suffering a major depression, not just sadness, 
but a paralyzing listlessness, dejection and self-pity, and an overwhelming hopelessness over the course of life. What Goldman is pointing to here is the increased society-wide in the prevalence of emotional bankruptcy, the overwhelming hopelessness, the nihilism that Goldman describes results from our sense that we are unable to overcome this impoverished emotional state on either the individual or the global level. According to Goldman, the age of anxiety that characterized the 20th century is now evolving into an age of melancholy. Hmm. That's a really interesting concept, right? The age of anxiety is now evolving into the age of melancholy. In Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl claimed that the existential vacuum is a widespread phenomenon of the 20th century and lamented the fact that 25% of his European students and 60% of his American students felt that they lived in an existential vacuum, a state of inner emptiness, a void within themselves. The situation today is worse than it was in 1950 when Frankel wrote his book, and a more recent survey of students entering American colleges may help to explain why. In 1968, college freshmen were asked what their personal goals were. 41% wanted to make a lot of money, and 83% wanted to develop a, a meaningful philosophy of life. The pattern was significantly different in 1997 when 75% of freshmen said their goal was to be very well or financially and 41% wanted to develop a meaningful philosophy of life. As larger numbers of people came to perceive material wealth as an end in in itself and and, and thus as more individual members of society are unhappy, society as a whole nears a state of emotional bankruptcy. With emotional bankruptcy comes some sort of the most, uh, some of our most disturbing social problems, including drug and alcohol abuse and religious fanaticism. It is easy to see why an unhappy person might take drugs if they provide him with a temporary escape from the reality of his joyous, joyless life, or why someone might turn to a charismatic preacher who often who offers eternal happiness. Happiness is not just a luxury something to be pursued once all our personal and societal ills are resolved. Increasing the levels of the ultimate currency improves the quality of individual lives and can make the world a better, safer place. So the last page and a half, which I'll read to you, uh, says exercises. This is called sentence completion. So I'll read those to you. Uh, Hold on. I'm going to do that. Now, oh, that's int- oh, that's funny. Um, I think our um our Discord um for some reason um lost um audio. Um, yeah, I mean it's really difficult to try and do this with uh, with both LinkedIn and um and Discord. So I should have paid more attention. I also see, by the way, something weird is happening with my phone when I do the LinkedIn stuff because it seems like my phone keeps wanting to pick up um, the actual, you know, to kind of pick up the the mic. Um, So I don't know what's been going on. Maybe it's better in Discord now. Um, Sentence completion technique was devised by the psychotherapist Nathaniel Brandon, considered the father 
of the self-esteem movement, the simple technique generating a number of endings to an incomplete sentence often helps people come up with insights that bring about meaningful change in their lives. There are basic uh, few rules to this exercise. Quickly generate at least six endings or as many as you can think of to the sentence stem. You can do this in writing or speaking to a voice recorder. There are no right or wrong answers and some of your answers may contradict each other. Put aside your critical mind, think after, not during, after you generate your responses, go over them and see whether you've learned anything important. It may take a few trials before you gain some insight. If you do learn something new, act on it. While sentence completion works on the conscious as well as the subconscious levels, you will gain the most benefit if you consciously follow up on an insight. Here is an example of a sentence stem completed with seven endings. Okay, so... See if you want to try this with me. So the sentence is, if I bring 5% more awareness to my life, right? And so here are the things. I will realize the price of saying yes too often. I will no longer be able to avoid difficult situations. I will appreciate my family more. I will appreciate my life more. Things could get more difficult. I will spend more time with my family. I will be kinder to my employees. So all of this um, is based on if I bring 5% more awareness to my life. Following is a list of a few sentence stems taken directly or paraphrased from Brandon's work. If I bring 5% more awareness to my life, dot, dot, dot. The things that make me happy are, dot, dot, dot. To bring 5% more happiness to my life, dot, dot, dot. If I take more responsibility for fulfilling my wants, dot, dot, dot. If I bring 5% more integrity to my life, dot, dot, dot. If I were willing to say yes when I wanted to say yes and no when I wanted to say no, dot, dot, dot. That's a huge one. If I breathe deeply and allow myself to experience what happiness feels like, dot, dot, dot. And then finally, I'm becoming aware, dot, dot, dot. Work on these sentence stems a number of times. You can do them every day for a couple of weeks or once a week for six months. You can do them all at once or do two or one at a time. If some sentence stems particularly resonate with you, repeat them for as long as you find them useful. So here's the last point. It's an exercise that says creating a happiness map. Look at the map you created as part of the exercise at the end of chapter three. Based on the data you collected, envision your ideal week. Once you have a picture and image of what you would want your life to look like, it's much more likely to become a reality. Um, if you wanted to spend more time with your family, say eight hours a week, write it down. If you want to spend less time watching TV, write down the amount of time that you think is ideal. Given all the other things you would like to do, make it as realistic as you can. For example, uh, if you ideally, if ideally you would like to spend 20 hours each week reading novels and watching plays, it may not make sense given the other obligations in your life. Are there things you do that you 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 man? Are there things you do not do now that would yield high profits in the ultimate currency? Uh, would going to the movies once a week contribute to your well-being? Would it make you happier to devote four hours a week to your hobby and to go out three times a week? If you have many constraints and cannot introduce significant change, make the most of what you have. Consider what brief activities that provide you with both future and, benefit, uh, and present benefits you could introduce to your life. If a one-hour commute to work is uninspiring but unavoidable, Try to introduce some meaning and pleasure to it. For example, listen to audiobooks or to your favorite music for part of the ride. Alternatively, take the train and use the time to read. Once again, ritualize whatever change you would like to introduce. P. 
periodically, once a year or so, repeat this exercise as well as the mapping your life exercise in Chapter 3. Notice the progress you made and the areas where you would like to make further improvement as well as the ways in which your priorities may have changed since last year, thus necessitating some revision of the map. And that is the end of the chapter called The Ultimate Currency. Um, I want to uh, comment on the one thing which I really liked, um, which is, you know, this idea of, like, the commute. So, you know, um, I, uh, I spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about it. I certainly have written um, uh, about it. And um, I, I um, you know, I want to just talk about the, the simplest idea of ta- driving. Okay, so imagine, imagine, you know, you have to drive to uh, the city. So you can drive to the city um, in the morning, let's just say you've got to be there at 9 a.m., you can, it's probably going to be a one and a half for me, a one and a half hour, one hour, 45 minute drive. It's going to be a long drive. Um, and I'm going to have to find parking and that parking is probably, I don't know, you know, $35, $40 a day and there's gas and whatever. But I'm in my car. I'm in my car. I can sing. I can talk. I can be on conference calls. I can listen to audio books. Um, I leave when I want, and, and when I go home, you know, I'm, I'm again back in my car. I can stop off. I can pick up something, um, and I'm in control. And that may give me the ultimate happiness. Or um, I get up extra early. You know, again, it's probably about probably about the same for me. You know, it's about an hour and a half on the train. I get a seat. Um, I've got my Wi-Fi. Um, I can open up my laptop. And I can work. I can be super productive. I can be on my phone. I can play games on my phone if I choose to. You know, like the Bejeweled and the Clash of Clans and Wordle and all that sort of stuff. Um, I can email, you know, I can watch Netflix and catch up and binge watch on my favorite, uh, um, you know, reality show survivor i love survivor um but you know um thank you james you just sent me uh, i appreciate you being here um but um it's not my time it's i mean my schedule right if i miss the train i'm screwed a little bit of stress in the morning but you know when i want to leave the office it's a little bit of of um technicality or also by the way i get into grand central um i then maybe have to take a subway um sometimes the subway is all sticky and 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 icky and awful because of the you know because it's too hot or sometimes i have to be outside it's pouring with rain um you know so but again rain can operate in a different way being on the highway rain can make the commute a little bit more treacherous um, there could be an accident and I could be stuck in traffic for three hours. So there's positive and negatives throughout. And, and you make a decision um, based on what makes you the happiest. What gives you the most fulfillment, right? Some people say, hey, I don't mind the commute because I get so much done 
In the morning, I work for an hour and a half. I open up my laptop and I don't stop for one second. I'm, I'm like, I hit the ground running. And in the evening, I kind of take some time for myself and I watch Netflix on the way home. Maybe I pick up a, you know, they used to have bar cars on the Metro North. Maybe I pick up a cold beer or, or something like that or a cup of coffee, whatever, you know. So it really depends. Now the commute, which by the way, I spend a lot of time saying the commute sucks and I hate the commute and we need to, you know, it's a problem and blah, 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 right? So the commute is generally considered to be a negative experience. But what if you turned it into a positive experience? What if you actually say, I'm going to, you know, for want of a better phrase, I'm going to make the most of a bad situation. I'm going to create the best case scenario from the worst case, from a worst case type of scenario. Why not? I mean, I think that's what we're talking about here. Because, you know, at the end of that week, well, actually take, you know, in this hypothetical example, maybe you only end up working four days instead of five. Maybe because you were so productive, you know, in that commute, you actually ended up, um, you know, working, quite frankly, an extra six hours that week. One and a half, one and a half times four. And maybe a little bit in the evening, you know, just to catch up on email. So did you even need to work on Friday? So if that entire experience results, you know, including with and including that train commute, by the way, the train is much more reliable in inclement weather um, than, you know, driving, I'm saying, than being able to deal with the, the, the driving commute. Would that have been worth it to now have Fridays off in this particular case? I think so. So just some thoughts today, you know, we will continue to try and figure out the best solution, the Discord versus, um, I think maybe what had happened is, because I did see this um, sign, uh, I know Rhonda, you're in LinkedIn now, I did see this weird sign that said on mute, and that's why I asked, can you hear me? But I think maybe it had made Discord mute, so I don't know. You know, we continue to live and we learn, um, but have a wonderful day, and uh You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.